Howdy. It's good to be here. I um, give you a brief update. I th- I, I'm trying to remember whether it's October was two years or three years, but I think it was two years since I was last here, um, which means that that would have been about uh, ten months, nine months after my first daughter got married. Well, last Saturday, a week ago yesterday, my second daughter got married, and <clears throat> so it was an exciting day. Uh, Lindsay and David then um, were, were shuffled away to Hawaii on a plane the next morning, and they get back later, I think, later this evening to uh, Tampa uh, Airport. Uh, but what a, what a joy that's been. Um, Lindsay, many of you, that if you've been around for a long time, some of you may remember praying for Lindsay when she was younger because uh, she went through about eight years where, frankly, we did not think she would ever make it to this age, much less get married. And um, by God's grace and mercy, uh, she not only made it, she's healthy and whole and uh, now married and coming home from her honeymoon. So God was gracious. And and the young man that... um, uh, she married, uh, you know, I, frankly, Donna and I feel like we struck gold twice. First, Micah married our oldest daughter, and he is just a treasure. And, and now David, who uh, you could not ask for anybody more perfectly suited, uh, just you, you can tell God has been involved from their, both of their births to bring this about. And um, just a, a wonderful uh, relationship, a godly man. And uh, the, the only thing I keep telling the Lord, I said, you know, there's just one flaw in the whole design. He's in the Air Force, which means in about two years, they're going to be whisked away to some other place. And I guess, Lord, I don't get everything I would have wanted in this, but uh, a man I would trust her with completely uh, in in that process. So uh, that's a good thing. And then then we still have two at home. Our our third daughter, Carissa, who is uh, 20 um, right now, and in the end of January, heads off to Italy for three months on a mission and we'll be there uh, teaching English while witnessing and sharing Christ with those there. <clears throat> so that's going to be a time when Donna and I will be looking at each other going, we've got one left right now, and it really seems empty. So I told her when she gets back, I will have made the decision that she'll have to be 25 before she gets married, um, <clears throat> simply because I don't want my house to be that empty. And then my son, who's 17, um, is, is uh, home and, and growing, and before you know it, he'll be... Uh, uh, 18 years old in February, so life is uh, radically changing for us. Um, but uh, God is good. The church is doing well there, and sends their greetings to you. And I am uh, just joyed to be here. I, there isn't anywhere else beside Gulf Coast where I'd rather be than here. And I uh, love being here. It's a real joy. And if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. <clears throat> Um, Matthew's Gospel, we'll begin at uh, the very first verse uh, briefly, but before we do go to God's Word, if you would, uh, join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the light that it brings us as we spoke of earlier. Lord, most importantly, not only does it bring light, but through the work of your Spirit, you shine light in our hearts to 
starts something brand new in us. You say, light be, and light becomes. And Lord, I ask that you would do that in our hearts afresh this morning, and for some, the very first time, as we come to realize who Jesus Christ is. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the the son of David. Now, that sounds almost odd because while the first chapter is about his genealogy, or the first half of the first chapter is about his genealogy, one wouldn't think of this book being about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, just the first half of the chapter, and course that could be translated the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ and then it fits that but actually it's the same verbiage that's used in the book of Genesis in a couple of places and it could also be translated the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah the son of David the son of Abraham Uh, for instance in Genesis 2 4 we read the book of the Genesis most English translations say the record of the heavens and the earth when they were created, but the book of the Genesis, the beginnings of the heavens and the earth when they were made, in the day in which God, or in which the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Or in Genesis 5, verse 1, it might read this way, the book of the Genesis of Adam, man, in the day in which God made Adam, or man, in the image of God, he made him. <clears throat> so here we have the book of the Genesis, the beginnings of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, How did all this begin? And by saying the Genesis, I I think we're being clued in on something that we find in the Gospels. That with the coming of Christ, something entirely new is beginning. There's something that is akin to the creation of earth itself, the heavens and the earth, that is beginning with the coming of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1, verse 17, so if you just look past all those names, I don't know, maybe you're not like me, but when, you know, January begins the, okay, I'm going to read through the Bible one more time attempt. How many of y'all do that sometimes in January? How many of y'all get past February very often? Okay, I mean, <clears throat> I've, I've got a great Bible reading plan that I use, and when I say it's great, what I love about it is there are no dates on it. So you start, if you miss a day, nobody on there knows. I mean, it's not like you're off a day. You just keep checking off the boxes as you go until you finally get through it. So sometimes it takes a year, sometimes, you know, 16 months, 14 months. But whatever it is, you just keep working your way through it until you're done. And those are helpful, by the way. I encourage you to consider one like that. It's a little less depressing come March. Um, So, but when I read these genealogies, like on January the 1st or whatever day you happen to be in Matthew, it, it, it usually goes something like this, and it's starting in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Jesus, and Ram the father of Solomon, and Abed, and Jesse, David, Solomon, Abijah, 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 Joram, Isaiah. Okay, and we get to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. In case you read it like that, now you know what I go through when I get to these. But verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation or the exile to Babylon 
14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew is actually in this verse giving us a, a clear summary of the Old Testament. I mean, if you're reading through your Bible, straight through, you've just gotten through this much reading material, and in one verse he says, okay, here's the summary. Thanks, I could have started here. It's been a lot easier. And, And that summary is pointing out a pattern. The summary of the Old Testament points that something new is about to happen. He starts with Abraham. What was, why Abraham? Why does he start with Abraham? Why not Adam? Luke as you recall, I think from last week, because you, you all looked at Luke last week, he, he brings the genealogy of Christ, though it's in chapter 3, all the way back to Adam. But, but here, <clears throat> Matthew is starting with Abraham. And the reason he's starting with Abraham is because, of course, with Adam, you have the fall of man, and everything goes downhill from there until you get to Abraham. And with Abraham, you have a promise, you have hope, you have a promise of blessing to the entire world. God has re-engaged human history, as it were, by making a covenant to say, I'm going to do something about this sin problem. And so the first third of the Old Testament history, if you will, is from Abraham to David. Now what happens from Abraham to David? Well, you go from a nomad and a promise to a king in his glorious kingdom. A nomad who's wandering around the the, the deserts, as it were, to a king with a glorious kingdom possessing the land. A wanderer. A kingdom. The second part of Old Testament history is from David, the king and his kingdom, to the exile. The deportation, as it says in the ESV. We commonly refer to that as the exile. The, the, The time in which the nation of Israel was scattered across the earth, taken out of the land. The very land God promised to give them through Abraham, the very land that they would be brought to in fulfillment of the promise, they get brought from the fulfillment, the height of the glory of the kingdom, and they're scattered. It's as if nothing had ever happened. They're right back to where they began again. It goes from glory to the depth of despair. It covers the time period from David through all his descendants, some of who, uh, who followed the Lord, many who did not follow the Lord, their idolatry, their wickedness. It was the exile, this dismantling of the kingdom, sending Israel back into bondage, the loss of their nation and land, to which the prophets spoke, or from which the prophets spoke. They either spoke about this happening, or they spoke when it had happened about what would come. From there. The thing about the exile that's fascinating is if you look at the, the history of Israel, they're brought out of slavery and bondage in Egypt to the promised land, and the exile is basically a returning to slavery and bondage. It's a returning to captivity. God is saying, okay, you've broken the covenant. I'll send you right back to where you came from. And he sends them there. This is the unfathomable low point in the story of redemption. It is here that we have books like Lamentations and a weeping prophet named Jeremiah at this low point in Israel's history. From David to the deportation to the exile. 
Then you have the third part of the Old Testament story of redemption. From the exile to the Christ. Now the Christ is the one that was promised who would come. Yes, all the way back in Genesis 3, 15. The seed of the woman. All the way through the Old Testament. But particularly during the prophets, as we'll see later this morning, there's this promise that a a deliverer would come. And he would deliver God's people ultimately from their sin. And from all the consequences of their sin, which included this captivity, this bondage. You see... When God brought Israel out of Egypt, He delivered them from physical captivity. But that was not sufficient, as the exile proves, as their history proves. Now God would deliver them not only from their physical captivity, but most importantly and centrally from their spiritual captivity. So that indeed, whatever other deliverance He brings them could take and hold and be permanent in their lives. This is the promise, the promise of comfort and consolation of return and restoration. The promise that all the prophets spoke of. That following the desolation would come consolation, restoration, and even renovation. Language like, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. I will make everything new. The promise of God doing something entirely new. A new heaven and a new earth. The Old Testament ends with the Genesis of Jesus Christ. It ends right at that moment when we have the record or the book of the Genesis, the beginnings of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, and ultimately the Son of God. God's reign as Savior King. The pattern, and this is what Matthew's pointing out in verse 17, the pattern indicates that now is the time. This is the generation in which Messiah would come. 14, 14, 14. We are here, Matthew is saying. We have arrived at that place in history when it is time for that new segment to begin. The genesis of Jesus Christ. The time has come. There's a psalm that is written about people returning from captivity. It's the 126th psalm. It's about their return from Babylon to the land And and, and it contrasts the time of exile or deportation to the restoration of Israel. And it reads this way. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. We were like those who dreamed. The NIV reads it this way. Like when men dreamed. Like when men dreamed. Exile was a time of weeping. The time of restoration is like a time when men dreamed. Matthew is telling us about a time when men dreamed in the first two chapters. When weeping will turn into a time of joy and comfort. And a time when people are dreaming the coming of the Messiah King. God orchestrates events in these first two chapters of the book of Matthew through five dreams to the fulfillment of a pattern of redemption to tell us of a new beginning, the new genesis of Jesus Christ. There's another interesting pattern that fits in with this as well. You may recall that Israel, Jacob, 
had 12 sons. And if you read the last third of the book of Genesis, that the last third of the book of Genesis is basically about how the one son who pleased his father was sent into captivity in order to deliver the other sons who were a bunch of bums and deliver them. And we know him as Joseph the Dreamer. Well, Matthew's going to introduce us to another Joseph the Dreamer. In fact, four of the five dreams that we're going to read about this morning were given to Joseph the Dreamer, a different Joseph. And we're going to learn a lot about how God will use another deliverer to save all the other bums, like the first one did. Let's look beginning in Matthew 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear you, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This dream informs Joseph that Mary has conceived a child supernaturally as a virgin. And we learn in this text that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, if you would, hold your place in Matthew, but turn to Isaiah 7, because obviously this text has a large bearing upon what we're reading today. Have you ever ever read some of the prophecies from the Old Testament when they're quoted in the New Testament, and you kind of wonder, how in the world did they see that that was a fulfillment of this? I mean, you kind of... And I've even heard people say that Well, you can't really interpret the Old Testament like the apostles did. But you know, actually, I would argue that we need to learn from the apostles how to interpret the Old Testament. And that's actually exactly how we're supposed to interpret the Old Testament. In fact, they should know a little bit more about their Old Testaments than we do. I'm just guessing that they did. And, and, And actually, I think when we go into the Old Testament and begin to learn it, we'll find that they interpreted it perfectly in keeping with what the text was about. And this is no exception. In Isaiah 7... The the setting, you can see it beginning in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So Ahaz is king in Judah. Now, just for a quick overview, just to make sure everybody's able to track a little bit with me, you might be familiar with Old Testament history and you might not be. But at this point in Old Testament history, you've had David's kingdom and his son Solomon became king after him. And immediately following Solomon the kingdom divided into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, 
usually referred to as Israel, but sometimes referred to as Ephraim because their king was from the line of Ephraim. And then you have the southern kingdom, Judah. But later in history, often even referred to as Israel. So you've got to be careful as to where you are in the Bible as you're reading this. And so you have Judah, the southern kingdom, named after the tribe from which David came and which their line of kings came. So Judah and Ephraim represent who's sitting on the throne. Israel and Judah, more commonly the names of the nation as you think of it. And occasionally, because Ephraim's father was Joseph, you'll hear Israel referred to as Joseph. So, as you're reading your Old Testament, it can get confusing, but there were two kingdoms. Now, Ahaz is king in the southern kingdom. The smaller, but the one that has Jerusalem. And then we read the following. Rezin, the king of Syria, bad guys to the north, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So you got the two kingdoms, now one of them's attacking the other one, along with his big buddy from the north. Verse 2, when the, king, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You ever have times in your life when you hear something and your heart shakes as the trees shake before the wind? I've been there. We've all had those moments when, when, when something occurs and, and, and it just seems like everything is coming unglued. Well, this was one of those moments for Ahaz. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, this, this place, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of the, these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Now, the Lord is kind of funny here. He, he, don't be afraid of these two smoldering stumps, you know. I mean, Ahaz is thinking they're about to kill us, and you call them smoldering stumps. But to the Lord, he, in other words, he's saying they're nothing to me. That They're nothing to me. It, it may cause you to shake, but come to me with that fear. They are nothing to me. And as you read down, verse 5, Because Syria and Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah, their king, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, note that because that will become important in a moment, within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, Ahaz is told, don't be afraid. But Ahaz uh, is going to choose, as you'll see in a moment, to say, uh, no, nah, actually, I think I'm going to remain afraid. I'm going to work something out because I don't think the Lord can get me out of this. That's kind of shorthand for what follows here. And in verse 11, the Lord says to Ahaz, ask a sign from the Lord your God. The Lord understands how difficult it is to believe at this point. So he says to Ahaz, listen, I understand you're having a difficult time believing me. So I'll tell you what. You ask me for any sign you want, and I'll demonstrate to you that I will indeed deliver you. But since you can't wait to see me deliver you, you need to believe now. 
ask me for anything, I'll do it, and I'll prove that I'll deliver you. Ahaz, who has no intention of actually believing, feigns piety. He, he pretends to be too righteous to ask for a sign, and basically says, oh no, far be it from me. Far be it from me to ask the Lord for a sign. Oh, that, would be, oh, that wouldn't be right to ask the Lord for a sign. But the reason he's doing that is, of course, because what if I ask for a sign and he does it? Then I'd have to believe, and I'm not about to do that right now. I'm going to make a a, a compact with Assyria who's going to help me out more than the Lord is. Bad decision. So the Lord responds to him and basically says, okay, you won't do it? I'll tell you what, I'll pick a sign. I'll pick the sign. You don't want to pick a sign? I'll tell you what. Since you won't pick a sign and since you won't trust me, in short, yes, you will go into captivity, but I'm going to give you a sign one day, and the sign I give you will be so amazing that you will know that I can deliver you from anything. And we read beginning in verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. Note that point. 4, verse 16, Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, okay, so before, he's giving you a time reference here, before this boy gets old enough to know the difference between good and evil, he's going to be a a child, before that happens, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, when did it tell us a few verses prior that the land that will give those two kings come from will be deserted? Well, it says... 65 years later. 65 years from the time of this prophecy, that will occur. And before this boy gets old enough to to know good and evil, that will have already occurred. So this virgin's going to be with child some 65 years or more. We're not given an end point. We're just given that it's at least that far away with child. And God says, basically, I'm going to do exactly what I say I will destroy Aram, I will do this, and I will do that, but this sign will come much later. But now, basically, something bad's going to happen to you. Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, when they divided, the king of Assyria is going to come. And, and that becomes the subject of the prophets of Isaiah that he goes on to talk about how they will be destroyed. So you might ask to yourself, well, what does this have to do with Mary, a virgin, at the time of Jesus being with child and giving birth to a son? It has a lot to do with it. The virgin, the sign is that the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. Now that phrase, give birth to a son, goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. It goes back all the way through the Old Testament. The promise was a son. And from David onward, God promised that he would always have what? A son who sat on the throne, who would be the king on, on, on the throne of David. And now the Lord is saying, you, you, you fear for your kingdom? Here's the sign I'll give you. A virgin will give birth to a son who will sit on that throne. The virgin in Isaiah, if you look up the Hebrew word for virgin, and I haven't done this because I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but there are guys that are, and they've done a lot of study on this word, and they can inform you, and, and, and John Oswald uh, has two commentaries on Isaiah, probably the best commentaries that I know of. Alec Motyer 
another commentary on Isaiah, and, and, and he makes this particular comment that if you, you study out the word for virgin there, and you get into depth and in looking at how it's used throughout the various ways that it's used, that it actually means virgin. It's, it's, it's amazing, but it means virgin. And it's, in, in fact, it's the particular word that they would use to designate virgin as opposed to just any young child or any young girl. It would not just be a young girl. It would be specifically a virgin, whether you're in Isaiah or whether you're in Matthew. And that's an important note because they had no other word to use for virgin, and this would be the word that would distinguish virgin from someone who is just a young girl who might otherwise be married or otherwise not be a virgin. So this was that particular word that is used here. Now, it's fascinating because... I think it's clear that the virgin was not there the day that Isaiah gave this prophecy because the prophecy is at least 65 years in the future. We're given that one. And and so even if she were a virgin the day of the prophecy, she'd probably be too old to bear children by the time she got to the fulfillment of the prophecy and possibly dead by that point. So that wouldn't really work. She wasn't there that day. It seems to be a distant prophecy. And it seems that it would be considered a messianic reference, both in the context of Isaiah and the fact of of this reference, give birth to a son, speaking to the king of Judah. And it has a tone of judgment to it. This child will be called God with us is good, but what does Emmanuel mean to Ahaz and those who refuse refuse to trust in God? You know, the idea that God with us to us is a wonderful thing. We read of Jesus, he's Emmanuel God with us as deliverer, that's wonderful, right? Ahaz, God with us, was, was not exactly great news. <clears throat> Ahaz, hearing God with us, is more like this. It's like two brothers, maybe one's uh, 16 and the other 18, and they're out with dad and mom and dad and mom's car. They've borrowed the car, and they're, they're out doing mischief all night, and they've really done some really bad things, and... And, and, and one of them says to the other one, man, do you know what happened to us if dad found out what we've been doing? And the other one says, yeah, man, we'd be in really big trouble. And then the next thing they know, dad pops up in the back seat and says, hey, guess what? I'm with you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's what God with us means to Ahaz. Oh, a few other thoughts. <laughs> And we're in deep trouble. (laughs) See, God with us has good consequences because had they trusted in the Lord, He would have delivered them. Good because He would do what He said, but now because they had not trusted the Lord, it's going to be a long ways off. Bad for Ahaz because he didn't trust in the Lord, but rather trusted in man's might, Assyria. God being with him meant big trouble. And you can read about that in chapter 8 where he goes on and this word God with us is used again in the context of the trouble that they would experience. Now, here's the thing we've got to know about Ahaz's fear. It isn't that Ahaz was afraid that was his problem. And I think this is important for us because oftentimes I think when we become afraid, we have this kind of mindset and we've kind of been you know, just kind of out of our Christian broader culture, been taught that the opposite of faith is fear. So that if I'm in fear, then I must not be in faith. And therefore, my fear itself is the very problem that I have. 
that, that, that my fear is sin. But see, Ahaz's fear was not his sin. Ahaz's sin was where he went with his fear. You see, once he was afraid, God says, come to me and I will deliver you. But Ahaz said, no, no, actually, I'll pass on that. I'm going to go to Assyria. That's where I'm going to go. It's not when you are afraid that, that you're in trouble. It's where do you go with it? Faith is not determined by the presence, or lack of faith is not determined by the presence of fear. Faith is not determined by the absence of fear. Faith is determined by where you go with your fears. Do you run to God with your fears? Or do you run to man and what he can do? Do you you not trust God with your fears? God invites us to bring our fears to Him. He doesn't rebuke us for our fears, but He tells us, you have no need to be afraid because I will deliver you in your fears. Idolatry in and of itself is not our fear. Idolatry is about where do we go with our fears? Where do they drive us? What do we trust in when we are afraid? We need to go to the Lord in our fear. The God that Ahaz would not trust would one day with these merely whistle, as it were, and bring empires to destroy them. When you don't fear God, it's important to recall that God is with you. God will show Himself strong when you trust Him. Second dream we come to. So that's the first dream that Joseph had. If you would go back to Matthew. I intentionally spent more time on that first dream than I will the rest, just, I think, simply because of need. But the second dream we come to is the Magi's dream. And this is in verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 2. You're probably familiar with the story, the visit of the, we traditionally call the three wise men or the Magi. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men, Magi, secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, a star that they had uh, seen uh, when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And listen to verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now the dream comes at the end of the scene warning the Magi not to return to Herod in order to conceal the location of Jesus a little longer. However, it involves this whole conversation of the Magi with Herod in this whole scene, which is a fascinating scene. It's it's really becoming one of my favorite scenes in Scripture. It's just because of the, the way it really speaks of the gospel promise. 
get the picture. You've got Herod, who is the king of Israel. I mean, sure, he's a pawn of the Roman Empire, but he's their king. Now, he's not from the line of David, which seems to be a little bit of a problem. But at least he's the king of Israel. And he calls together all, and I love the emphasis that it has in these verses, all the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He he brings them all together. I'm sure there might have been a few absent, but the point is, he's gathering every possible resource they have in the, the greatest minds in Jerusalem together. And they can't figure out where Jesus is supposed to be born. And it's not like it's really that obscure. I mean, it points to a verse in Micah that is as plain as day tells us he'll be born in Bethlehem. I mean, it's not like it's some coded reference. I mean, it's clearly referring to the Messiah, clearly pointing to Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah, and they can't figure it out. Instead, you have three magi. You know what magi is the root word of? Magician. You've got three Eastern magicians who knew nothing about biblical scripture and Hebrew scripture who are coming because they're following the stars, which was an accursed practice in Israel. So oh, let me get, we've got the king of Israel and all the leaders of the Hebrew people can't figure out where he's supposed to be born, though it's plainly said in their scriptures. And you've got these magicians who are following stars, which is an accursed practice, who show up. Now, never mind... Think of the book of Daniel toward the end of of Israel's history as they're brought into exile, going back to exile. Brought into exile, you've got three wise men from Israel who outwit all the magicians of the east. Now you've got three magicians from the east who outwit all the wise men from Israel. You think there's something going on in God's kingdom here? You think that maybe there's something very upside down about the kingdom that is coming? You think that it's coming in a way that, like Isaiah prophesied, would be completely the opposite of what they expected, that it would be filled with Gentiles and filled with people that, that were not like eunuchs. The eunuchs would be coming in and Gentiles, foreigners would be coming in and would be the majority of this regathered people of God. And here the Magi come following stars. And they get it. They find in the scriptures where Jesus is supposed to be born. I mean, it's not like it was hard for them to find it, but these guys cannot. And they point to that. When the exile began, things were one way. Now they're completely upside down. Now let's look at the next two dreams. I'm going to kind of look at those together. They're back to Joseph again having dreams. This is... His second and third dream, or now dreams three and four in our, our text. And read with me in, 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 in uh, beginning in verse 13. The, the first dream informs Joseph to flee to Egypt, and the second dream tells him to return to Israel. So you've got that they come on the both ends of this trip, if you will. So if you would begin reading with me there. Now when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. So he takes the child and the mother by night, and they go to Egypt. They remain there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill, middle of verse 15, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, 
And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then this obscure quote, it seems. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. First, we have verse 15. Out of Egypt I called my son. Let's look at that reference in Hosea, if you would. Just turn quickly to Hosea, which, by the way, after all those big prophets, you know, you get past Ezekiel, and then you get to Daniel. The next book is Hosea. So Hosea chapter 11. Kind of a middle-sized prophet in his book. And it's an interesting verse because... The way that Matthew quotes it, you're thinking, oh, Jesus, out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is the son. Clear reference, right? But when you go back and read it, it doesn't seem to be quite so clear. But actually, I think it is, but we just have to understand what's going on in Hosea briefly. Verse 1 of the 11th chapter of Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. What's the the reference now? When Israel was a child. He's referring to the nation of Israel. The son of Hosea 11.1 is the nation of Israel. If you go back to the book of Exodus, God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. And he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my firstborn son go that they may worship me. He calls his firstborn son out of Egypt. So, Hosea is referencing that point out of the book of Exodus. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, remember that's the northern kingdom, to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king, because they have refused to return to me. What is God saying? He's saying, okay, I I delivered them out of bondage, but they have refused and they have rejected repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. So now I will send them back, but not to Egypt. They'll go to Assyria. As the Old Testament pattern is, had happened, now Matthew is telling us that it's repeating itself. Out of Egypt, God called His Son, but then He sent them away again, Right? From the exile to the Christ. Now God is calling His Son out of Egypt again. He's saying, Israel, my son, my firstborn son, failed and they broke covenant with me and I sent them away. But now I am calling back to myself the the seed of Abraham, my son, my firstborn son. And in Him, we will all be called and gathered back to God. Because you see, ultimately... The exile was not about Israel being scattered to Assyria and then later Judah being scattered to Babylon. 
Ultimately, the exile, that was a picture pointing to the, the greater exile, which occurred all the way back in the book of Genesis when man was kicked out of the presence of God. And God is now gathering His people back to Himself. But you see, that's more than just gathering us out of slavery in Egypt. That involves delivering us from our bondage to sin. That's the exile from which all of humanity is to be gathered. Now why do Joseph, Mary, and Jesus need to escape to Egypt? Because Herod is trying to kill Jesus. Herod realized he's been tricked, so he sets out to kill Once he figures out that he's been tricked, he sets out to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity to and under. That's a small town. I mean, even if you take Bethlehem and its vicinity and you take all the kids from to and under, you know, you're talking about maybe from 10 to 20 kids. Now, that's that's a major disaster, don't get me wrong. But I mean, you know, as a child, I always thought that, man, you're talking about thousands. No, this is 10, 15, 20. It's, it's, It's a small area, a very poor area. But it's a gruesome slaughter. But we're told that it fulfills something spoken by Jeremiah there in verse 18. Any serious reader of their Bible who has examined the context in Jeremiah has to wonder what it has to do with Herod killing these babies. But let me suggest that it is an understanding how it has to do with Herod killing these babies that it's key to understanding what Matthew is communicating to us through these accounts. So, once again, glimpse with me in Jeremiah 31. I have a rule of thumb that we, we, at Gulf Coast, I remind our folks regularly. I've probably said it here in the couple of times I've been here, but I, if not, now's the first, I guess. When you're in the New Testament and you read a quote from the Old Testament, go back to the Old Testament and read it in its context, understand what it meant there, and then go back to the New Testament and, and your understanding of it in that context will make all the more sense. And so that's what we're doing this morning with these various passages. So in Jeremiah 31, from which this comes, it's it's important to catch the context here. Now, back up to chapter 30, just to get what what comes ahead of this. Um, Verse 3, For for behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I'll bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. So, context. Jeremiah is right at the point of the exile. The people are being led away into captivity. They're being brought away into captivity. But God reminds them that there's a promise that He will bring them back, He will regather His people, and and that, that good times will come, that He will actually deliver them. And, and it, then it goes on to describe through verse 7 these horrible circumstances, the grief, the trouble, the anguish that they would experience and were experiencing at this time. Look at, look at chapter 31 and look ahead to the verse 31 of chapter 31 because here you have the other end, again, referring to the day when this will be fulfilled, these promises will be fulfilled. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is 3131. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So at the time of the exile, Jeremiah is promising there's a day coming when the Lord will bring complete and total deliverance and it will be a new covenant. And this is the one place in the Old Testament where the actual phrase new covenant is used. And this, these verses are quoted all through the New Testament. So, Jeremiah, in this context, then reminds them. Look at chapter 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Now, this, this follows all the way through verse 14, promises about the day when deliverance would come. But here... It goes right back to where they are. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Now what's going on in Jeremiah 31? with Rachel weeping for her children. Here's what's going on. It's a fascinating verse. Rachel was the wife of Israel, Jacob, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, his favorite wife. The Really, she's the figurative mother of Israel because not only was she the mother of Joseph, which would have been Ephraim came from that, the head of Israel, But she was the mother of Benjamin, which was the second tribe that was a part of Judah. So both Israel and Judah are covered by Rachel. All of Israel. She's the mother of all of Israel. Rachel was buried really close to Bethlehem. And Ramah, which is really right near on the road to Ramah where she was buried, right there. Ramah is the very place where all, when when Babylon came to take the, the, the Judah out and bring them to Babylon, they gathered all the people at Ramah and, and, and put them in fences as cattle, as it were, chained together, waiting to be carried off into exile. So you have this picture of the mother of Israel now in her tomb, in some nearby tomb, because it would have been right close to the same place, where all the exiles are being gathered together to be deported. Now, here they are, presumably partially stripped, bare of all their possessions, chained together, waiting to be led by their captors to a foreign land. What a, what a grievous picture. What a horrid picture. Rachel weeping for the devastation upon her children. And it's right in the middle of that that God says, there is a hope for your future and your children will come back. And so Matthew picks up on this because right in that same place, these Herod slaughters these children. And Matthew reminds us of that promise because right after that statement about Rachel weeping is what? There is a hope for your future and your children will be brought back from the exile to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew is saying now is the time for the regathering of the people of God. It's beginning to occur in the genesis of Jesus Christ. Finally, look at Matthew 2.22, the fifth dream. <clears throat> it 
when, but when he, this is Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream. Now our fifth time we see that phrase, in a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, if you've looked for footnotes in your Bible to figure out where did that come from, he shall be called a Nazarene, you're going to have a difficult time finding it. Because there actually is not a single place in the Old Testament that says, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so this is definitely the most obscure and difficult one. But there are really two options that are available. Possibly both are intended. The first, I think, the most probable. And that comes from the book of Judges. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart from God, to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel. He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, it, I, I believe it's this one most importantly because it fits the pattern. The language is there. But I think what Matthew is doing here is playing, t- picking up on a, a pun. We would call it a pun in our day. He will be a Nazarite from birth. Nazareth, Nazarene, Nazarite, they come awfully close to being the exact same word. That's close enough. <laughs> Let's just... Grab that and point to the fact that God is fulfilling the pattern that there will be a son given because all the way through the Old Testament you have this promise of a son and you keep getting sons that come. You know, you have these kings and they had a son who sat on the throne. And, and then you'll read about one that does good and then all of a sudden you'll read, but he did not do away with the high places and you go, okay, he's not the Messiah. And you read about sons that do good, but he did not do away with this or but he did this or but he got proud, even Hezekiah. And so you know, okay, he's not the one. But now you have this promise, with him will begin the deliverance of his people. And so I believe that's what Matthew is pointing to. The other possibility, and possibly both are intended, Isaiah 11, 1, where it says, but a branch will spring up from the stump of Jesse. The word for branch is, almost sounds identical to Nazarene. It's, it's, the, the, the consonants are the same, the vowels are different. And so... He is the branch. He's the the Nazarene, if you will. He's the one that would spring up. And that's in the same context as the one that we read from about the virgin in, in Isaiah 7. So that's a possibility, the one that would, would extend the Davidic line. And again, possibly both. But all of these accounts of dreams and accounts of how Jesus fulfills Old Testament patterns and prophecies are telling us that with Jesus begins a whole new era in redemptive history. The time of the exile of the lost children of God is over. Not just Israel being scattered to Babylon, but everyone here who at one were born into this world, exiled, scattered, deported from God, out of the presence of God, no longer living in the garden, but kept from the tree of life, have been gathered back to God through Jesus Christ and have a new beginning with God, and have life in Jesus Christ, and have hope. And that time of hope and a future has come because of what Christ has done 
for us. Now, there is one more dream in Matthew's Gospel, interestingly enough. You see, Matthew stops talking about dreams now until you get to the end of his Gospel. When you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, you have one more dream. Matthew 27, 19, while Pilate is sitting on the judge's seat. This time it's not Joseph. It's not the Magi. But this time, actually, it's a woman. Pilate's wife. In fact, I'm going to read that in Matthew 27, verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, the sixth time we see that in Matthew's Gospel. In a dream. You see, back with Herod, those who had wanted to take Jesus' life, Joseph discovers they're out of the way. So he comes back and settles in Nazareth. He comes back from Egypt. They're they're gone. But all of a sudden, some 30 years later, those who want to take his life are back on the scene. And the one who sits on that judgment seat, who's about to cast judgment concerning him, his wife has a dream warning him to have nothing to do with this man's death. Pilate had a decision to make that day about what he would do with Jesus Christ. But this dream isn't really just about the decision that Pilate had to make that day. It's about a decision all of us have to make. What are we going to do with this one born Jesus Christ? Fourteen generations after the exile, fourteen generations after David, fourteen generations after Abraham, the one who came to fulfill a pattern of a son given who would reign on the throne of David forever and ever. The one who is the beginning of a genesis, the, the, new, the, the new genesis that is going to occur in human history, the recreation of the world in Jesus Christ. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The old passes away because our sins are forgiven. What are we going to do? With Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, may we, may we make a decision regarding Jesus Christ. Unlike pilots where we just wash our hands and walk away. But rather, may we come to the realization that you have revealed to us what you are doing by delivering us, delivering us from our sin, that we might be delivered from the exile, the real exile, that exile that has kept us from your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. How about doing the Father's love? First song we did today, would that work okay? Got that? <clears throat> if you would, let's let's stand. As we sang the song this morning, the Father's love, it struck me. Really, there's there's much here that 
reflects on what we've just heard from in the Scripture. So, if you would, let's all just go to the Lord and, and take, a, take time while you're singing this song to, to really think through what, what have you done? What have you done regarding Jesus Christ? I mean, do you just find it a fascinating story? Well, maybe you say, I, I accepted Jesus once a long time ago, but He came as King. Do you run to Him with your fears? Do you trust in Him? Or as Ahaz did, do you go scurrying about to fix things on your own and say, yeah, we'll get back to that and, and live a life of supposed or pretended piety? Let's cast ourselves fully and completely on Him and trusting in Him, our, our King, our Heavenly King. Before we go this morning, let me just pray over you and bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pull this from both Jeremiah and Hosea where we had some of those promises this morning in that context. We find there that the Lord has healed your apostasy. He loves you freely. His anger has turned from you. So may the Lord refresh you in His love like the morning dew. May your life blossom like the lily and take root like the trees of Lebanon. May you live your life in the shade of God's presence. May the Lord put His law within you and write it on your hearts. May you all know Him from the least to the greatest. And may you know that He has forgiven your iniquity and remembers your sin no more. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You're dismissed.